Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 50. My name is Arvin. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. Fooliman, how is your newfound Twitter fame going, uh, getting to you? You know, Are you, you, you going to be too what? big for the podcast soon? Uh, probably. You know, from here on out, it's all caviar on expensive cars. Um, I assume that's what happens when you have like a moderately successful tweet is someone just gives you material goods. Is that how it works? That's how it works on Instagram. Oh, damn it. Um, well, I'm not pretty enough for Instagram. So You're min-maxing the wrong stats. Uh, I went about this the entire wrong way. Anyway, but uh, yeah, so I had a tweet in relation to the Leafs-Habs game, um, which was a lot of fun because the Leafs beat the Habs. Uh, it was close. I would say it was a, a hard-fought game. There was a real capital P playoff atmosphere, in my opinion. Um, but I think the Leafs were the better team. Uh, except on the power play, where the Leafs were just hapless. Um, yeah, which, and yeah. we touched Weird. on this last week, and I, I didn't watch all of the game. I saw the first period, and then that's it. Mm. But I am getting to the point where I'm concerned about the power play. And for a long time, I wasn't because they were still generating shots. Mm-hmm. But the, at least in the first period, God, they looked really bad <laughs> on the power play. They just looked so inept, unable to gain the zone at all. And I mean, I'm. Yeah. Uh, it's hard for me to diagnose it from here, but it doesn't appear to be the issue that we had before, where like they were generating chances, but they weren't going in. They're just not mm-hmm. generating as many chances now. Yeah, that's uh, it's worrisome. I mean, the Leafs, and this has been true since 2016, rely on that uh, drop pass zone entry to get the zone on the power play pretty much every time. Like, someone carries it, and then they do a drop pass, and then they come over the line in a group of four or something like that. Yeah, and, and it helps having guys like uh, William Nylander and Mitch Marner and John Tavares. Like, all, almost everyone on that power play unit, uh, at least the top power play unit, is a puck-carrying threat. Yeah. So, uh, it, 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 it's a simple it idea, but it's like, yeah, it's <laughs> like, get your get it to your, your any of your skilled forwards in, in a bit of space, and they'll probably make it work. Yeah. Except in they theory, haven't been recently. Except, yeah, and... You know, the Leafs have been relying on this since uh, 2016 with different personnel. And even at the time, I remember a couple seasons ago, there would be teams that were very good at standing the Leafs up at the line. I'm thinking of uh, Carolina did this one game and just absolutely smothered our power play. Uh, We didn't generate anything all night, and we actually gave up a shorthanded goal to Elias Lindholm. But when that entry isn't working the power play is going to look awful. Maybe the more worrying thing now is that, unlike previously, when they set up, they still look kind of impotent. You know, like, we we give it to Marner. The other team kind of concedes the shot to Marner. Uh, Not entirely, but they would prefer Marner just shooting it with a lot of lead time to anything else that we might do. And then Marner has to choose between kind of uh, usually not that effective shot or trying to force the cross-eyes pass, which usually gets blocked. So it feels like we got to do something here, just generate some more looks or, you know, I'm wondering if there needs to be a different playmaking option because the whole power play is basically Mitch Marner runs the show. Yeah. And he's terrific at that, but they're ready for pretty much everything he's going to do. So I'm wondering if the, you know, the power play has to be run off maybe the other wall once in a while or just something to discombobulate the defenders. Because if they know what's coming like this, it's not going to be very effective. And it's interesting to contrast it to last year, right? Where similarly, the first unit power play ran through Marner. Mm-hmm. But it definitely felt far more uh, dangerous 
when they got into the zone. And I think part of that is they were more willing to just feed it to JVR in his office. And he would, he is so good at just generating shots in tight and generating rebounds in tight. And then what also helped is having Tyler Bozak on the other side as a right-handed shot. This is something Tyler mm-hmm. Dello has talked about a lot. People kind of gave him some grief about it during the first part of the year where the least power play was just destroying everyone. But he raised the point that Austin Matthews as a left-handed shot crashing the net on the left side, his forehand is away from the middle of the ice, mm-hmm. right? So putting in rebounds is, is a bit more difficult, mm-hmm. right? So it has its advantages. It's probably easier to pass. It's easier to disguise there, even though you can't get the one-timer. But um, that's a real disadvantage. And Tyler Bozak, his role on the power play was crashing, creating those – or capitalizing on those rebounds, creating havoc in front of the net, and even uh, setting up other people when needed. And mm. it, it seems definitely one, far more one-dimensional now than it did before. Now, I, I'm still hesitant to really, really panic. Yeah. Because I trust the personnel a lot. But it, at this point, yeah, it is definitely very concerning. Yeah. The thing about it is that uh, John Tavares has indicated he wants to be the net front guy. And he is, by the way, good at it. Mm-hmm. You know, notwithstanding, he may not have exactly the same very tailored skill set that JVR does. But Tavares is a fantastic and all-around better offensive player. Yeah, but I, um, I do think it's fair to say that JVR is one of the three or four best net front presences in the league. Yeah, definitely. He's He's got the hands to operate in tight. And as much as we, you know, we described him as, like, not that physical a player, he is huge and he's very hard to move. He's six so three he, the whole game. Exactly, and so he he would you know set up shop there, and you know he he would take a few cross checks in the back or whatever. But he would hold his ground and just wait, and yeah, so he he is extremely effective at that. The problem with the power play setup is okay. You have John Tavares wants to play net front. You have Austin Matthews who wants to be on the first power play unit, and apparently that was a point of some discussion between him and Mike Babcock at the end of last year. And we'll get into this, but. When you're paying a guy eleven point six three four million, you're paying him to be on your first unit. Yeah, pretty well. Um, but the result is that if you um, kind of lock in those pieces, it gets kind of tough there because mm-hmm. one, um, you you've committed to putting Austin Matthews somewhere, and you've committed to putting John Tavares in one place, and then you have uh, Nazan Kadri, who's good with the high tip, but all of those guys are left hand shots. So if you want to put a, a right shot on the power play in Matthew's position, you have to shuffle somebody out and probably replace them with William Nylander. Yeah, um, so, so so one thing that I saw the Leafs do intermittently, and I don't think this happened yesterday, but it happened maybe a few games before, is where they put Kadri where Nylander is as a right-handed mm-hmm. shot. And that also gives a, one, uh, a quick one-timer opportunity for, for Nylander in the middle, right? Uh, it, it reduces the amount uh, you can get off the high tip because he has to tip it on his backhand now. Mm. but it's another look. So that might be worth considering. Um, what would make more sense to me is actually having Nylander on the, where Matthews is and then Matthews in the middle. Yeah, um, which, you know, might be something to look at just for the sake of shaking it up because it's clear it's kind of stagnant right now and a power play with this many weapons should not be this predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, even with the drop zone entry thing, which is unfortunate, um, the thing is, is that a lot of teams all around the league do kind of rely on that to gain the zone. Yeah, and I see and some hate so. for it, but like I, I see why also people do it. Like it, I think it works a lot of the time because mm-hmm. teams are going to be passive. Yes, teams if they scout it, they can jump on it and break it up and 
really make it look stupid, but I don't, I'm not convinced it's a, it's a ridiculously silly tactic in general, but I haven't yeah. seen any stats on it. So I could be wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, all of that said, as much as we've talked about how ineffective the power play has been lately, and it was glaring last night for sure. Uh, other than that, the Leafs played a pretty solid game against a team that we have to acknowledge is pretty good. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, I would much prefer it if the Habs were not a good team, but they are. They don't have the high-end skill like the Leafs do, but they have a lot of solid players. They're pretty deep. Uh, Claude Julien has them playing a pretty defensively responsible brand of hockey, and they're a solid shot-share team. Um, yeah. Their power play also is not great, but by and large, they're a dangerous team. Mm-hmm. They, so. they, they lack game breakers that the Leafs do, mm-hmm. right? And actually, that was on display last night where Nylander, on a night where his line actually otherwise just got caved in in shots, just mm-hmm. beat Carey Price clean from the, from the dot, right? Not that many players can do that. And then yeah. in overtime, Mitch Marner made a beautiful pass. John Tavares somehow elevated a backhand 15 feet in 0.1 meters, like, from the from the net. So, yeah, like, that, that that's an absurd backhand, by the way. Like, it's, like holy crap. That goal know. was unreal. It was such but a good goal. The the Matthews goal against, um, crap, my memory's going. Who did we face before Nashville? Or not, not before Nashville, before Montreal? Uh, before Montreal, was it Ottawa? Yeah, it was Ottawa. God, yeah. what's going on with me? Um, but the Matthews goal there, where he just, like, he he did all the hard part, where he was like, kind of just he bulldozed his way through to the to the basically to the front of the net. But then the shot that actually goes in, like even though it's from so close out, it's like fired in with such venom and like mm-hmm. such uh, accuracy and power. It's like Jesus, like he's angry at that puck. <laughs> it's like he's mad that the defense like tried to stop him. It's like why, why are you wasting your time, guys? <laughs> he takes it as a personal insult. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the fact remains, and the reason that I think that this team is so strong uh, as a playoff threat is just the number of game breakers that we have, um, including William Nylander. Just want to plant that little flag. He's mm-hmm. starting to get the bounces lately. Don't look now, but he's point a game in his past seven. Um, I feel very good about that contract, I will say. Which means it's time to transition to another fun discussion about contracts. The Austin <laughs> Matthews extension. That was a peerless segue. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so Austin Matthews, as I'm sure most people have heard, uh, recently signed a five-year contract extension with the Toronto Maple Leafs at an average annual value, as Arvind referenced before, of $11.634 million. Uh, the contract is almost entirely signing bonuses, to a um, ludicrous degree. Like to the like to the maximum degree. Austin Matthews' actual salary in every year of this contract is uh, seven hundred or seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Like it's league minimum, and his salary bonus check on July first will be fifteen point two million dollars, which is just like okay, but uh, the Leafs have the money. And so they can pay players like this. They've done it with Tavares. They've done it with Matthews. They're going to do it, I suspect, with Mitch Marner to a similarly absurd degree. And the league will get mad about it, but it's legal. So no, it's not our problem. Uh, also, Matt, like, it, yeah. it is kind of annoying that the league is like, oh, wow, we, we have to curtail this issue because mm. um, it or for whatever reason. I guess because it sort of circumvents the idea of what a signing bonus should, should represent. Mm-hmm. But it's like... I don't know. You already have the cap to help small small market teams. Yeah. Most big market teams are in higher tax areas, and 
taxation and with athletes is complicated. I'm not going to get, get into it here, but it's not as simple to say as high tax area means you're ta- it's a huge difference. But mm-hmm. there's differences between markets in terms of take-home uh, salary. So I don't see why it would be a bad thing for a team to leverage the financial power in this case. Yeah, like, I, don't I, know. I don't I don't see I mean, who it harms. I think the reality is that when you hear chatter like this, there are a couple of bitter GMs and other markets grumbling about like, oh, well, you know, we can't do this and now we can't compete. Now we can't compete. And, and, you know, I'm just like, come on. The salary cap is, as you said, already there. Um, well, I think and, the Leafs have It seems like this along. is more of a thing that like, I, I don't know if this is necessarily helping lure people into Toronto more or into other big markets to a really large degree. Like it probably helped with Tavares, but mm-hmm. also I, I think the biggest thing was that the Leafs were in a good condition or good position to contend. Yeah. Right. So I they, mean, they they probably offered it to Steven Stamkos and yeah. it didn't work. So <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Um, you know, maybe in the next CBA, they'll crack down on those things. The rumor is they'll try, but I, I think that this is like a nice bonus, no pun intended. It, it's like, it's a pleasant thing. It does, probably matter but i don't think that this is like skewing the competitive balance of the nhl mm-hmm. anyway so austin matthews is getting a ton of those he has a no move clause in the last year of the contract uh i have some mixed feelings about this contract so i, I want to say right off the top the most important thing is that austin matthews is a brilliant hockey player yeah he may soon be the second best player on the planet uh, he's already as good a goal scorer at even strength as exists it's terrific that we have him on the team. And the macro big picture on this is always, it's really good that he's in Toronto. Right. And I would rather have him even at an overpay than not have him. And it's not like this is, you know, in a completely other galaxy. That said, the deal is not really what I would have liked it to be, I think is, is the way I would put it. It's a five-year contract for one thing. Um, guys like McDavid and Eichel both signed, uh, eight year contracts, which is, um, preferable for us in a lot of ways. One, because we get more years guaranteed with this player, probably under a rising cap. And as much as you, you know, you say, okay, why are you worried about what's going to happen in six years from now? Focus on the now. This is the winning window. We gave up those three years to the benefit of the player, and it doesn't look like we got that much money back. So this like this contract, if you believe Bob McKenzie, was in line to cost something like thirteen point eight or more million dollars a year um, against the cap on an eight-year deal. Right. That so, would, so in that sense, you could say yeah. we did save, uh, we did save money. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, this is what you'll probably get to is. That's an absurd, like on an eight-year deal, that's an absurd ask, kind of. Not an absurd yeah. ask, but it, it's, it's a very expensive one. Yeah, so when Bob McKenzie said, well, you know, on an eight-year, it would have been this, I'm thinking, says who? Maybe that was his opener on an eight-year deal, but that would mean that Austin Matthews is far and away the highest paid player in the NHL, like more than Connor McDavid, accounting for inflation in the cap in the one year since uh, McDavid's deal kicked in. That, like, that's nuts. Um, he's a great player, Austin Matthews. He's not the best player on the planet. And you say, well, Connor McDavid isn't the only comparable. He doesn't set the market. But it's like, at some point, it, it makes him far and away the highest paid player in the league, if that's what it is on an eight-year. 
So I keep thinking, okay, I don't know why I should accept that that eight-year number is what this really needed to be. And if you're saying this five-year deal was in line with that eight-year deal, I still think that the cap hit is pretty high. We didn't get any kind of a discount on this. And that is what it is. Sometimes you can't get discounts. Matthews had a lot of leverage, but we didn't really push it either. Even if you're really afraid of offer sheets, offer sheets uh, can't be issued or signed until July 1st. So we kind of just said, okay, this is as good as we're going to do. We basically gave him his ask on a five year. And if the idea is just, we had no choice, he's our star, we just got to pay him whatever he wants, maybe. And if you're afraid that somehow his cost is going to go up, this was an objection that some people raised in the comments of an article I wrote, then I get it. But I'm thinking, where is his ask going up to? On what basis? Like maybe if he wins the cons might, but he's already scaling it on the basis of I should be the highest paid player on the planet. You know, it's like... It just feels like we kind of accepted the maximum possible valuation and we were either unable or unwilling to try and knock it down. It's possible our leverage was just so limited in dealing with Matthews with the state of our team that we just didn't have a chance of, uh, of knocking that number down. But the fact remains, this looks like a lot of money <laughs> and, you know, you'd like to save a million, two million here and there, because it enables you to keep the Andreas Janssens of the world, the Kasperi Kapanens of the world. And I'm not saying we're guaranteed to lose either player. I'm just saying when you lose a million five or two million against the cap on a deal like this, there's a pinch that comes down the line. Yeah, so I guess there's a couple things I want to add on here. Um, the first is that Austin Matthews is both, I think, kind of overrated and underrated in some senses. Um, I think mm. people underrate ex just how good his individual scoring is. It's His individual scoring is comparable to McDavid's on a rate basis, um, yep. especially at even strength. Like He is one of, he's the best even strength goal scorer in the world. He is one of the best, if not the best, certainly in the top five even strength point scorers in the world. And if you look at primary points, right, because mm. secondary assists are simply not as valuable as first assists or goals, yeah. then he is pretty much one or two. Yeah. And, you know, he's done this at 19, 20, and 21. And yeah. also, I mean, this year anyways, he's not had amazing line mates. No. Right? He hasn't had his usual William Nylander running mate. And as much as we like Kasperi Kapanen, and I think Kasperi Kapanen is not far off and maybe even is a first-line winger right now uh, mm -hmm. because of everything he provides, uh, you know, in an all-around game. Kasperi Kapanen isn't the guy you envision Austin Matthews running around with. Right? No, I, so, I mean, in our dreams, uh, I think William Nylander gets back on that on that line. And I, I think that's also Mike Babcock's preference. Like, he liked having them together. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I think that that's how it's, it's going to end up. Now, that said, Connor McDavid plays with, like, you know, a bunch of pillows dressed as a man or something like that. Yes. <laughs> His wingers half the time. Either it's, like, Ryan Nugent Hopkins or Dracidal, or it's just, like, the remains of Milan Lucic. So, you know, again, I, I do think, um, you know, it, I, well, I mean, no one's saying otherwise, but Connor McDavid is clearly a cut above everyone. Um, but Austin Matthews, yeah, he, he is in that class. You're right. saying he's overrated, but also underrated. Yeah, and where I think he's a little overrated is that he, he hasn't driven play for his line or his team the way we would like to see from an elite center, right? Mm -hmm. And 
to some extent, it, it's, it almost doesn't matter because he has some of the best shooting in the league. And, like, it's consistently some of the best shooting in the league. He's always going to outperform his shot metrics because he is so good at shooting, and he takes a lot of his team shots, as he should. Um, yeah. But, it, yeah, it's like, it does make you feel a little uncomfortable in the sense that, like, right now, right now, I don't think he's the least best player. I think John Tavares is. Yeah. Um, I don't think Matthews is far behind, and I think as early as, like, next season, he will probably be the least best player. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it is, it's a little, it feels kind of unfortunate, because even if this is a fair deal in a vacuum, I think we're accustomed to seeing what other RFAs have gone for, including McDavid and Eichel. And both of those deals are unequivocally very, very, very team-friendly. More team-friendly than the Matthews' deal is, right? And Katya had an article where she, I think, very thoughtfully argued that this is a team-friendly deal, in fact, when you consider kind of the, the, the situation at hand, even though it doesn't necessarily represent a discount. But it's like what is most annoying to me is perhaps the opportunity cost, where mm-hmm. RFA contracts are, you know, not to be, not to be too pro-management here, but it's a time where you can kind of put the screws to your star players and save some money. Yeah. And the ability to do that is certainly lessened when it's a guy like Austin Matthews who has tons and tons of leverage. Like, you can't really play hardball with Austin Matthews. He's the guy you tanked for. He's the face of the franchise. Your hand is forced to some extent. But, yeah, I think that's where a lot of kind of the, the concern comes from. The other thing worth noting, and I want to bring this up, is that there aren't very many comparables to this type of deal under the current CBA. But if you look at the old CBA... Like the, and I don't uh, by that I mean the post two thousand four lockout CBA, you yeah. get some more similar um, deals. Like Rick Nash's deal is not that far from this. Uh, it was a five year. Um, Sidney Crosby's and Evgeny Malkin's were both somewhat similar. I think Stamkos's and even Kane and Taves were in the same ballpark. Matthews was a bit higher, but I guess what, what's your counter to that if you have any? Well, I'd note a couple of things. One of them is that. It's a different era, and there are different expectations as to how long you're going to play, as to when you make your money. Um, Even in the time when Rick Nash was signing that deal, which was coming right out of the lockout, um, it was like an immediate post-introduction of the salary cap deal. Um, Even at that time, there was an expectation that you could play well into your 30s or push 40. Um, And there were a lot more guys doing that. Now there's an expectation that timelines are shorter, you're supposed to make more money on your second contract. Uh, you also don't have the option of eventually signing like a 13-year contract that dives at the end uh, to distribute more money. So I just think that it gets into a different financial landscape, you know what I mean, compared to this one. There's also the fact that uh, Crosby has like a mystical fascination with the number 87. That's been well documented. He was born on August 7th, 1987. He's always worn number 87. Uh, he signed deals whenever he's had the opportunity at an $8.7 million cap hit. And so the first one was quite high and Malkin matched it. And then he signed another deal after it that has been like one of the best deals ever because he only took $8.7 million for 12, 13 years. So all of those things make me think those comparables are from another era. They're in a different... Uh, state of play in the league and we're now competing against teams especially teams like Buffalo that are getting these eight-year deals 
that are paying their players less. And so it's just, there's a competitive disadvantage. Yeah. We, we've talked about this before, but if you pay every player exactly what they're worth and you spend at the cap, you're going to be an average or slightly above average team because there are teams that don't spend the cap. Um, you have to find some value somewhere. And Austin Matthews is so good that you can probably say that he's going to be underpaid on any deal he might sign if he's that great and he delivers on his potential. But the fact remains, we're not saving that extra money and that prevents us from adding value with the money we could spend elsewhere. I, I envision it as the difference between, say, Andreas Janssen and replacement level winger is how I would put it. Yeah, so I, it's disappointing. It's also disappointing because um, Tampa seemingly saves $2 million per contract like on their AAV just no matter <laughs> for everyone that they have relative to like their counterpart on the Leafs right like yeah. Stamkos is making what like 8.7 or something no no 8.5 8.5 yeah some, something absurd absurdly small Kucherov's 9.5 um Hedman is probably like nine or something Hedman is 7.875 oh my god fuck like, these guys like... <laughs> Braden Point's gonna sign for like a bag of Skittles and pocket lint yeah. just to fuck us over yeah uh, i mean and some of that you know we do talk about the tax environment in florida and it's also it's a, a well-run organization they're a contender the weather is nice when you know they're not having a hurricane yeah. but um you know there are so many things that are appealing about that market right now uh that that is a factor in them building what looks like a super team <laughs> because they're just so stacked and so when we worry about the Austin Matthews contract, it's not that it's, you know, the end of the world or fatal or anything. It's just you wonder how we're tracking to get kind of a competitive advantage against the Tampas of the world. And this is not doing that. We haven't gotten any special value here. It's still fine. Austin Matthews is still a superstar. Again, much rather have him than have the cap space that he would cost. Yes. But... Um, just saying, you do wonder if maybe we could have done it a little better. I've had several people when I wrote an article saying this, tell me that straight up they don't think so, including James Myrtle. He said he thought the Leafs had waited as long as they could, and the numbers had gone the other way on them. And maybe that's the case. I can't help thinking that deadlines or just putting the offer in front of the player and waiting to see if he takes it can put some pressure on it. You know, I think of that old Lou Lamorello line about if you've got time, use it. But yeah, I, I mean, it's hard to say what would have happened if they'd waited a little bit longer, but the decision is made and now we've got him for five years at least. So I guess we have to live with it, <laughs> which there are worse things in the world. Yeah, yeah like uh, we should just clarify this again. Everything that we're saying about Austin Matthews has to be viewed with the lens of Austin Matthews is, you know, right now, certainly a top 10 center in the world. And is much much can has a can easily be argued to be much higher depending on how you value his individual scoring versus like play driving and things like that. He is a mm-hmm. brilliant player. He is still so young. He is going to be phenomenal. We are blessed to have him on on this team. Yeah, I, I feel like we just have to hammer that point because people get really upset and they're like, "Do you want to go back to the days of you know XX and Y disasters of our past?" No, I want to win a cup. That's all. I just want to win championships. Austin Matthews, by and large, helps us do that. Saving a little bit of money would also help us do that. But, you know, the the big picture on this thing, 
in terms of having Austin Matthews is still obviously that it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, it does lead into a negotiation with Mitch Marner now, who purportedly his camp believes that they're worth not much less than Austin Matthews. Yeah. So, is... I mean, I started writing an article about the idea that Mitch Marner is not is worth less than Austin Matthews and like why it, he is worth less than Matthews. And I ended up scrapping it because it just ends up reading as if I'm crapping on Marner. And that's not something I want to do at all. Because mm-hmm. Marner, again, is a brilliant player. We are fortunate to have him. He is a bona fide top-line winger. And you can say even more than that. I think he's a well-above-average top-line winger. Yeah. Right? What he's doing this season is has been phenomenal. And I think he's a guy who is underrated by a lot of our current staff because he is a playmaker. Mm-hmm. But he's not worth the same amount that Austin Matthews is worth. He's just not. Um, no. And there's a couple reasons for that. <laughs> and it, this doesn't even have to get into, like, oh, the center versus winger thing. It's that Austin Matthews has, over the course of the last three years since they've been in the league, has just scored a lot more at even strength when he when healthy, right? The the biggest yeah. knock on Matthews that you can really say is like he hasn't been that healthy and he hasn't gotten PP one time until this year. That's what's depressed his scoring numbers. But his his even strength scoring on a rate basis is just absolutely absurd. It blows away almost everyone in the league, including Marner, right? Yeah. And this year, notwithstanding, with Marner having like a fourteen percent on ice shooting percentage. Mm-hmm. Matthews has always just scored way more, and that's often what drives contract scoring rate, right? Yeah. And then you have to get into the fact that this year, um, and actually in general, I think the difference between in quality of teammates between Matthews and Marner has always been much, much narrower than people think. Oh, yeah. Right. I, I mean, we talked a lot about how underrated JVR constantly was as an offensive presence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it just... No one ever seems to believe us, but like he's, uh, he is a very, very talented player. Um, and so obviously so is Marner, but I think that that was always underrated as a contributing factor to Marner's success. Even now in, in, in Philly, JVR is like scoring at a pretty, pretty good rate. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, it, so, it's pretty like, close to his 30 goal player. pace and he's, he's missed time with injury as well. Yeah, he's a very, very fine player. But, I mean, the the fact remains now, he's playing with John Tavares, and you say, well, the two of them have clear chemistry and they're dominating, and that's absolutely true, and I want to emphasize, that's phenomenal. It's just, I feel like it's weirdly under-discussed that John Tavares has provided boosts of, like, 15, 20 points a year to much, much worse players than Mitch Marner. And so the two of them together, when they're both superstars, um, are feeding off each other. And that's not in any way a knock on Mitch Marner, but it's also like, look who his center is, you know? I just feel like that's under-discussed in uh, in what's driving those huge numbers that he's putting up. And for what it's worth, um, Tavares in his time away from Marner has been better than Marner in his time away from Tavares, right? And a big chunk of the time of Marner without Tavares is with Kadri and with Matthews, right? That's probably like Mm. 70 to 80% of the time without Marner. I, I did a quick look on this. I tweeted about it maybe a few days ago. But it's not like he's playing with crappy teammates when he's playing without Tavares. Like, he's playing with good guys. And it just it shows how incredibly good Tavares is, right? That's that's the biggest takeaway. And Marner, yeah. Marner's also incredible. He's going to cost a lot of money, and he's going to be worth it. But he's not worth Austin Matthews' money. And I think the team does really have to hold firm here. Yeah. Because they simply can't afford to pay... Even like a million off what Matthews is getting to to Marner. 
They, they can't afford it. That will prevent them from keeping guys like Kappen and Janssen. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the word has been saying the Leafs want the number to start with a nine. And if if Marner is thinking I'm worth maybe half a million less than Matthews, that means 11. That's a big gap. Um, it took a long time to close a similar gap on William Nylander. I still don't believe that he's going to sign an offer sheet because uh, that, that keeps being discussed. Yeah. I think, you know, he has a good thing here and he knows it. He likes the city. Uh, Marner is also probably one of the players for whom endorsement money really does matter. Uh, he, you know, he's, he's in what feels like a ton of commercials. He has a ton of promoted uh, tweets and Instagram things from uh, local businesses. I, I think that he knows that he's got a good situation here, but it's going to be a tough negotiation. Um, this week, Darren Ferris uh, gave some quotes to a Toronto Star reporter, Dave Festjak, and said, you know, Marner's not taking a discount. He took a discount by not getting enough bonuses on his ELC. And why is it down to Marner to take a discount when nobody else is doing it? And some of that's a fair objection. Um, it, you know, it's not on Marner to fix the cap situation for the team. At the same time, it's on the team to try and get the best deal possible. And that isn't giving him $11 million. Uh, I won't be surprised if this leads to a bridge. Yeah. That's where I was going to go. I think I think uh, a three-year bridge probably makes the most sense. And Bob McKenzie mm-hmm. said as much that yeah. he thinks this is either a three-year deal or like a six, seven, eight-year deal. But like mm-hmm. not a four because that walks him right to UFA and not a five because they definitely don't want Matthews, Nienander, and Marner all expiring the same year. Yeah, definitely not. So yeah, a, a bridge seems to make the most sense for all involved. And Kyle Dubas has recognized that next year is the squeeze year. It's the last year of the Marlowe contract. Um, where they're going to have a cap hit of 6.25 for him. And once you get past that, I'm not saying it gets easy, but it gets more manageable. Provided um, there's no more mistakes. Yeah. So <laughs> That's, The Leafs don't have any margin for error, right? Like, and their cap no. situation next year, it's uh, unequivocally tight. Yeah. Uh, the Jake Muzzin trade was great, in my opinion, for several reasons, but... One of them is also that he's making $4 million next year when we need him to. Um, I'm sure that that was a huge factor for Kyle Dubas is the possibility of getting a top four guy who's cost controlled for next season. I don't see us keeping Jake Gardner. I'm sorry to say it. And so you can hold Kasperi Kapanen and Janssen, hopefully. And, but I don't think this team is in a position to really add much unless they subtract considerable amounts of money which basically means do you unload Nikita Zaitsev so there is a real squeeze coming down the pike here Um, and there is sort of the the frightening fact it's like okay a year out from now if they're looking to be want to extend Jake Muzzin what are we doing here in terms of uh, looking to add on the UFA market as you say a bad contract there could be devastating and we just have to hope that Kyle Dubas doesn't make those mistakes. So far, I've been pleased with almost everything that he's done. But uh, it, it is a, sort of a fraught path with peril. You know, the, the jump from uh, very good to champion is the hardest one to make. So we're going to see here. Yeah. I, so I don't, not to put you on the spot here, which means I'm about to put you on the spot. <laughs> what would well, you expect on an AAV for on a three-year deal for, for Marner? This is the, uh, the thing that I've been wondering, uh, because it's 
not that common for players of his caliber to take a bridge. Yeah. Uh, Nikita Kucherov did so. Um, but even then, Nikita Kucherov kind of came into his own on the bridge contract. Like, that's when he really stepped up and became Nikita Kucherov, destroyer of worlds. He was merely very, very good. Uh, I would hope that on a bridge deal, uh, you could keep him to something in the 7.58 million range. I don't think you can get him for less than William Nylander is making on a turn deal. Yeah. Um, and even then, like, if we get Marner for three years at 7.5, I will think that we've done very well on the transaction, which probably means that Marner is going to push back hard on that or his camp. Yeah. And that's, man, that's scary. Like, three years, 7.5, that, that will make him a ton of money in the future because in, in three years, he'll be able to get like a 12, 13 million dollar contract with where the cap is likely going. Yeah, and like there's no getting around it. It probably sets up Mitch Marner to be the highest paid player on the team in a couple of years. Like, and that's unfortunate, but this is kind of the state of play here. The Leafs are trying to contend right this instant with this team. And if they can bridge Marner and shave a couple million there, that gives them a decent chance of holding both Kapanen and Janssen. And then you're kind of hoping on internal development to put defensemen around Riley and Muzzin next year and Dermot. Yeah, and, you know? and keeping Jake as much as I would like to is a bit of a pipe dream at this point, short of, as you said, as you alluded to before, getting rid of Zaitsev and, and Marlowe's contract somehow. And I don't even know how that would happen. Yeah, and again, we'll just emphasize this for the millionth time because I keep seeing schemes by which we would dispose of Patrick Marlowe's contract, and some of them are illegal under the CBA, uh, one or two of them are illegal under the crime laws, <laughs> but it's worth emphasizing. He has a no-move clause. He got it because he probably wants control over where he's going to play. He has absolutely no reason not to want to stay here. And so the cap hit is there and we just got to live with it. Nikita Zaitsev, I don't know um, what's going to happen there. It, there's a big argument that they should try and unload him. Even if you think you know, that does thin us out at right defense. I don't think he's really worth his deal. And his deal is kind of scary. I don't know what the market is for him. He's played a lot of minutes. He's put up virtually no points. Um, although he a couple years ago, he had a good run on a power play unit. And I'm sure he can still do that. I don't know if there, if there are, you know, teams that might think that he can rehabilit- be rehabilitated, excuse me, as like a real top four player or who don't care that much about fancy stats. But yeah, that's kind of the only place where you can open up some money. So, yeah, it's it's really difficult. Otherwise, yeah, unless you want to do yeah. something really radical, like trading Kadri or trading Nylander, and I I find it hard to consider or to construct a trade where we yeah. give up one of those guys and we end up on the better end of it. Yeah, I. You know, this is a point of disagreement between uh, Katja and me. She says, you know, maybe at some point in a couple of years you think about trading Kadri. And she raises the valid point that, like, sometimes you have to trade good players. You know, it's not always going to be guy I don't care about for guy I want. Um, but Kadri's deal is so valuable and he's so valuable to this team that I can't really conceive of wanting to trade him anytime soon. I can conceive of it in like two years, but like certainly not this offseason and probably not the offseason after that. Yeah, it depends where his state of play is at. But yeah. even then, you know, if the cap keeps going up and he doesn't decline to an especially notable degree, 
like 4.5 million for like a high-end second line center is going to be like an incredible discount. There's also, I guess, like marginal returns there, right? Because like, yes, he's a high-end second line center, but you can only play him so often because he's behind two guys who are better than him, Right. right? So like if you replaced him with, to put a name out of a hat, J.G. Pajot, who mm-hmm. I think is like a good third line center. Yeah. Right? That's a, that's a drop off. But in terms of the amount of time that they're on the ice, because they're, he's on the, the ice relatively less, Kadri mm-hmm. um, that is, um, relative to like if he was, if we didn't have Tavares, let's say, the, the drop off in terms of the actual amount of time we have a worse player on the ice is, is not as notable. And maybe you can get some savings, or you, maybe you could apply those savings to a higher leverage position where that guy's playing more and replacing a worse player, like right defense. Yeah, if you're getting a real upgrade at a guy who's going to be playing 22 minutes a night on the top pairing, then you can make an argument that, okay, you got to give to get. Maybe you move out from third line center. Yeah. But uh, it, it, it's, 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 I mean, it's hard to identify that opportunity a priori. Yeah, like the thing is, is that the guys who you're looking at are guys who are on valuable deals, who are playing at a top pair level and it's like well those guys don't move very often you know so um yeah it's hard for me to to kind of see a way forward and this is a bit scary if you're a Leafs fan because you know I think the days of big acquisitions are I don't want to say all the way over but like it's really really going to be hard to make significant changes in the next couple years like we'll be lucky just holding on to as many good players that we have as possible but, you know, it's just, it's going to be tough to add meaningfully. We, we've had such a fun time with adding these new players and then getting John Tavares in like a huge home run deal and even just adding Jake Muzzin. But I, I feel like maybe we're, we're limited now and I am probably jinxing this so that Cal Dubas makes a blockbuster trade by the time we air this. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think that this is kind of the team that we're going to ride with. Yeah, more or less. Reason. Yeah. So all that said, Bridge, Mitch Marner. So we got a bit of time here. And since we're doing that, I think it's worth taking a quick look at the Atlantic Division. Uh, We do this every now and then, just keep an eye on who's coming up behind us, who's uh, towering ahead of us in the case of Tampa. But just very briefly, um, it looks like Montreal is a pretty decent threat now. Like they're neck and neck with Boston. And like there's a pretty decent chance we would get them in the first round, which I think I speak for both of us in saying I'd rather play Montreal than Boston in round one. Uh, I don't love playing either of them, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as soon as you're like, oh, we don't have to play Boston, and then you start thinking of like, what if we lose to the Habs? Yeah, but, it's, a very, uh, it's a real monkey po- monkey's paw. It's like, oh, I hope we don't have to face the Bruins. Uh, you don't, yeah. but you might lose to the Habs. Yeah. Montreal's a scary uh, I, team to face in the playoffs because... Mm-hmm. They are good enough. They're they're good at controlling play at five on five, and Carey mm-hmm. Price is good enough to steal any series. Yeah, and he's uh, I won't say he's all the way back to Carey Price, um, you know, champion goalie of the universe, but he's been good lately, uh, and the team has been good lately. Like they're a real team. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, they don't have the game breakers that we do, but they'll give us hell in a series. And that game last night, I, I said this before, but it, like it felt like a playoff game. Um, just really aggressive, probably more venom than you're necessarily used to seeing from a regular season game. 
I think it would be a, a great uh, series, but it would be nerve wracking. Still, I just am tired of Boston. Yeah. I don't ever want to see them again. <laughs> yeah, I I was hoping for Buffalo, but they've just completely, you know, the 18 meters gone off the cliff for them. Yeah. They're, they're in a it, dog fight just to get into the wild card two spot. So it, it seems pretty clear that Tampa is Atlantic one. We're most yeah. likely going to be Atlantic two. Uh, we're yeah. only two points ahead of Montreal, but we have two games in hand. We're three points ahead of Boston, but with one game in hand. And that doesn't mm-hmm. seem like a lot, and sh- we're a four-game losing streak away from, you know, not this not being secure. But I think I would, I feel relatively comfortable that we're going to be in the 2-3 matchup no matter what, and yeah. most likely the two. Yeah. Um, Montreal or Boston is going to be the other per- party in that 2-3 matchup. Yeah. And, yeah, I, given the choice, I'd probably take Montreal. And part of the reason is that, as we said, they don't have game breakers mm-hmm. to the same degree that Boston has. Like, Boston has, um, as good as our forwards are, I think Boston has, like, three of the five best forwards in that series. That is an interesting proposition, but, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's it's probably true just because that line, again— so many times we say it, but like they're just unbeatable. David Pasternak also just eats our lunch every single time. Yeah, David Pasternak just like. Jeez. <laughs> I feel like yeah, maybe it's because you know he wants to show up his buddy William Nylander or something like that. But he's so good. Nylander also and... typically plays pretty well against Boston, right? And I mean, yeah, I people will say like, oh, what about last playoffs? He was fine last playoffs. He didn't get the bounces. Yeah, um, that's. <laughs> Story of William so Nylander's career. Yeah, I feel like like a recurring theme on this podcast could just be William Nylander is good. He's just not getting the bounces. Yeah, feels like we've said that like a hundred times. Yeah, no, but yeah. So, at some at some point, you do need to get the bounces in order to maintain your status as a good player, right? Because you do have some yeah. control over that. But for now, I mean, the, I mean, the epitome of the player who looks like he's never getting the bounces in terms of numbers is Zach Hyman, and in his case, it seems pretty clear he's just a below average finisher <laughs> you know that's just what it is yeah but yeah um yeah so all that said i i think montreal would be if we win a fun series but it would be a good series like the, yeah. the history there i think would be reignited i think it would be good from a hockey standpoint um it would kind of deliver on everything you know i'm kind of talking about this as if i'm a little removed from it it would be a lot of fun for like a third party to watch these two teams it would go suck at for each us other. god damn it that would be brutal yeah, but you know what? The playoffs are always stressful when you're a team with hope. Yeah. That's the thing. is like you're always like one bounce away from watching your heart get stomped I on, could so. barely watch the playoffs, to be honest. Like, It, it was tough, man. The it was, it was tough to watch. I wasn't um, too devastated by the Boston, the eventual Boston loss, because after the first two games, I just figured we were finished. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that we fought back to seven, I was like, well, that was better than I expected. But us coming out in game one and just getting destroyed was was tough to watch. That yeah, because really there's so much anticipation and then just come out like a wet fart. Yeah, especially, you know, given that we knew we were going to be in the two seed playing Boston For in like so January. long, yeah. And so it was like a four month build up to us just going out there and getting killed. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, let's hope that doesn't happen again. Yeah. Um, okay, <laughs> so after that, pretty much Buffalo is, is in contention for the playoffs. They're... Yeah. Um, two points back of the wild card two, which is currently held by Pittsburgh, and they do have a game in hand, but yeah. they've also been playing like fifty-three point pace hockey for the past couple months. So, yeah, I remember we said you know 
we didn't think that they were especially good. But I said, like, look, they've, they've banked enough points. They ought to be a playoff team. And I was like, that was assuming that they were going to be mediocre to middling the rest of the way. It, but it's like, I, if I you think play if like they garbage. Had a point pace of like 500, right? They would have been fine. Yeah. But they've done so much worse than that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's the same thing. I don't think they, they have depth. You know, like, I just don't think that they have enough good players, for lack of a better description. That seems simplistic, but like. They have uh, a top line that was running insanely hot, but that is good. And uh, Dalian is the truth and the light, but I, I'm just not scared of anyone deep on that team. Yeah. Um, and then, then after that, you get into really like the Drex of the Atlantic who are not making the playoffs. So Florida, Detroit, Ottawa. They're all yeah. varying degrees of irrelevant. Yeah. Ottawa is interesting to watch in a player movement sense, not in a hockey sense. I don't think anyone should do that to themselves. But we talked a bit before about uh, Matt Duchesne and Mark Stone and sort of wondering what would happen. I remember like a while out, we talked about like kind of the doomsday scenario, which is that in, at the time, I think we said, you know, in 18 months, this team could lose Carlson, Stone, Duchesne, Hoffman, who were their four best players. And so we're two for four. And we're coming up on the trade deadline, and neither Stone nor Duchesne has an extension in place. They're both unrestricted. I don't think Pierre Dorian can let them go. If he can't resolve an extension soon, he has to trade them. Um, he, I think he just has to um, for, for where that team is at. You can get a lot and for them. You should. And, you know, for we've each talked one of them, you should be able to get a good to very good prospect and a first. And maybe yeah. a roster player of some you know, degree of quality, but like uh, for sure, a good prospect and a pick for each of them, given rental yeah. prices. These are Mark Stone is a top 10 player in the world. Yeah. Like, like I, I'll put I it this think... way. And I think very highly of Mitch Marner. I would trade Mitch Marner. Like if, if we could swap Mitch Marner's next contract and Mark Stone's next contract, I would consider it. He's that good. Yeah. He's a, he's an outstanding player, a very, very good two way player. One of the um, should get Selkie consideration, but won't because he's a center or because he's not a center. Yeah, and like the there's like one winger who's ever won the Selkie or something like that. It was that, like Yuri Lettinen, right? Yeah, and he won it like three times, but he he legitimately is in that conversation, and he, he's brilliant. So like they should do well on this trade, and you know if they get a couple of firsts back and some prospects to be excited about. Um, you know, that gives them something to watch for in the draft. But at the same time, it's like, I said this before, that they ought to extend Mark Stone just for reasons of organizational credibility. Just to be like, we can get a good player and keep him. Because if you can't hit an absolute home run on a fifth round pick, sorry, a sixth round pick was what Mark Stone was, and have him apparently like the city and be in discussions with him, and you can't maintain that, it's a bit like, what's the point of this? You know? like And Stone, like, yeah, from... Given where he came from as, like, a, a low draft pick, I believe, right? As a guy yeah. who is a late bloomer. Very late. That Ottawa is kind of developed. And, like, that that's exactly the type of pick you need to make and the type of development process you need to have when you're a poor team because... You need to get a lot out of minimal assets. And they did, and then it's still going to nothing. Like, it's contributed to one excellent playoff run, and that's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, you know... It's kind of sad, if it wasn't funny. 
Yeah, I mean, it's hilarious to me. But it's honestly, at this point, it's like, what's the use of any of this? You know what I mean? I, I And I, I'm making fun of the Sens, but also, like, I can't imagine cheering for them, even if I had been a lifelong Senators fan, because it's like, okay, we're at the end of the line here. Not only do we struggle to acquire good players, not only do we make mistakes, you know, we're not huge players in free agency, um, we don't have a ton of money, it's like, we literally can't hold good things that fall into our laps. And if you can't do that, then I don't know what to tell you anymore. Like, you're never going to be good again. Like, you'll have to luck out insanely and have a bunch of guys on ELCs or something all at the same time because your window is going to be so small, even if you do kind of win the lottery over and over. Um, and Eugene Melnick, for the record, has made an odd quote where he's like, I'm totally willing to spend to the cap in 2021 when our window is open. And one, no one believes that. But two, the fact that he's emphasizing, I'm totally willing to spend to the cap when our window is open a few years from now, that awfully sounds like they're setting up uh, Stone and Duchesne leaving and they're trying to get a jump on criticism that's going to be Melnick wasn't willing to pay what they were worth. Um, geez. Like, that's a disaster. Yeah, it's brutal. But, it, it, being a sense fan seems like an exercise in nihilism. Yeah, like, there's there's no way that I would want to still cheer for that team. Like, I think at least until they get a new owner or something, but, like, man. And, you know, they have Tom Chabot, or Thomas Chabot. I've been informed that it's pronounced. Um, but, yikes. Anyway, so, yeah. I mean, it, that's it, it almost... Fun note. They have Chabot, who is excellent. They have Kachuk, who is is annoying, but also a very good player. Mm-hmm. But it almost feels like, all right, cool. I mean, they're gone in seven years. I'm not that worried. Yeah. And, you know, they don't have their first this year. Uh, they're the worst team in the NHL in the standings. They may finish last, although Anaheim is imploding in an unbelievable way. Um, out in the West, so they, they may not finish dead last. No, but, but... Ottawa still has uh, is still four points behind Anaheim. Yeah, um, and if Anaheim hadn't lost like a billion games in a row, I would say that that's probably still a given. But yeah, I, I mean, geez, like, what do you do at this point? You know, there was actually one great quote from like their director of communications or someone like that, mm-hmm. and. <laughs> I'm going to misremember it, but it was something to the effect of, you know, we're trying to get Stone and Duchesne signed to extensions. That's our priority. But if they were to leave, I would encourage fans not to look at it as the final straw. And I'm like, that's a very bad sign when you have to say, don't look at this as the last straw. (laughs) Oh, man, that's brutal. Like, even, like, the PR flack has to acknowledge it's like, look, it's been an unmitigated string of disasters for a very long time now. Um, I don't know. I Like, you just, you need, they need a new owner. And, you know, there are teams that have had bad ownership. Memorably, the Leafs for a long time had Harold Ballard, and he made the franchise a complete joke. Like, when people talk about 1967 and all that sort of stuff, what really happened in terms of the Leafs being inept was that they were owned by Harold Ballard, who was an unimaginably bad owner. And bad and person. he basically, oh, and a ghastly human being. 
And so he basically made the team totally useless for the entire 1980s. And so when you wonder, like, how did we go so long without seriously contending for a cup? Well, really, you point to that. And they've had flirtations with contention since in, you know, 93 and 2002. But, like, it is possible to come back if there's a change in ownership. But under Eugene Melnick, I would just have no confidence that this team can ever do anything but constantly shoot its own foot off. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fun times in Ottawa. Yeah, we always have such nice things to say about the Senators. And, you know, I want to be clear, you know, one, I am just laughing at them. But it is finally approaching the point where I'm like, geez, even I feel a little bad for them now. And, like, I didn't think I would ever reach that point. But just, like, the endless self-inflicted despair is just unbelievable. (laughs) Anyway. Yeah. But, yeah. Oh, I think we also we also we kind of skipped. We wanted to talk about how Muzzin has looked in his first two oh, games. Oh yeah, uh, um, Muzzin is the light and the truth, and I love. Yeah, him. he's he's, he's very good. He's him. very good. Um, yeah, but, I, you know, I, he he had a low bar to 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 cross, and yeah. So, um, Kevin of our website, Kevin Papetti, tweeted uh, asking last night for for a gif of this awful pass by by Hainsey. and I, I I didn't watch the last. <laughs> couple periods of the game so i didn't see it so someone responded to it i think it was nick d'souza who does a lot of leaf skiffing stuff and it's a good leafs twitter follow in general and this pass was legitimately the worst thing i've seen in my life it it, (laughs) it was an unpressured d to d pass in his own zone and somehow he missed riley by like two and a half feet and also the puck was like four feet in the air (laughs) i I, I legit just watched this gif for 10 minutes. I'm like, how, how is that possible? Because you see, like, Riley call for it. Hainsey passes him the puck. And Riley, like, tries to bat it out of the air, like, at his hip. And it's like, it's, a, it's the distance between them is, like, the distance between the face-off dots. <laughs> it's just like, okay. There's not a lot you can say to make that better. Yeah. That's, so, just, um, that's awful. Basically, Jake Musson is good. <laughs> yeah. So the interesting thing I is, really... the Leafs, um, Babcock is really shuffling defensive zone or sorry defensive pairings in the last few games like within the game itself yeah it's been interesting because i i guess he's still working at finding a fit and who he's comfortable playing on his offside you know his preference is probably not to play um defenders offside but he has no choice now because he has so many lefties yeah um like last night, last so, night yeah. alone, sorry i'm interrupting here but last night alone riley played fairly significant minutes with muzzin that was his most common pairing then he also played a decent amount with Hainsey, which led to that aforementioned hilarious pass. And then he, he also spent some time with Dermot, right? Dermot spent time yeah. with Hainsey, Riley, a bit with Muzzin, and a bit with Gardner. Yeah, like that's Gar- wild. Gardner spent time with Dermot, Zaitsev, and Hainsey for various Yeah, shifts. yeah, he's really got the blender out. And as much as, you know, we talked for, about him having static defense pairings for a long time, um, he did move them around in-game a lot in the past. And he really now seems to be experimenting and trying to find a fit that's going to work. Um, which is all to the good, you know, That's this is the time to do it. But I, I think Jake Muzzin was, I, I was high on the acquisition at the time, and everything I've seen since has made me feel better about it. I like, I love that acquisition on every level. I like the fit, I like uh, the cap hit for next year, um, I, I like that he brings dimensions to to our team that maybe we're less pronounced in terms of physicality and a slap shot without sacrificing 
you know, shot differentials or like actual defense. Um, you, you know, uh, some of this is just, you know, rose colored glasses because it's, it's a new thing and it's, it's, it's been fun and we've been winning, but I really think that that was a, a very high quality move by Kyle Dubas. Yep. I so. agree completely. I'm very, very happy with the trade. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think things are pretty good. I mean, Josh Levo has actually done very well in, in Vancouver. Now I'm, I'm reading, I, I saw his numbers are, are quite good, which is not, not surprising to me. I think yeah. we, we both were kind of, we, we thought he could contribute. Um, I am a little surprised. He's still contributing. Basically, his rate stats are still like a first liner, which is, I yeah. didn't expect that. And um, yeah, good for him. Like, I'm, I am genuinely happy for him. I, I want to see him have a, a nice long career. Yeah. And you know what? I, I think he'll do fine. I, I said, you know, if you put him in the right situation, he can score 20 goals. Uh, he's on a pace to do that in his time with the Canucks. Um, if you use the rate stats, as you said, he's on a pace to do better than that. So I'm I'm not sure where that's going to settle down for him, but he's a good player. It's too bad that we wound up trading him, but I don't know. I find myself thinking, okay, the fit wasn't really there. Well, it was just like he was never going to be used by Babcock in like in that role, right? You you have to use him yeah. above the 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 fourth line if you're really going to get the most out of him. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, like right I, even now, now we're I playing Janssen. I think he's better so. than Lindholm right now, right? Like if if we, I'd rather have Gauthier on the or sorry, not Gauthier. Uh, just, he's always on my mind. I'd rather have Levo <laughs> on the fourth line than than Lindholm. That's probably true. Although Levo is, um, you know, an offensive winger. Lindholm can play center a little bit. But yeah. Yeah. I you know, it's too bad. But I was maybe I was just so jaded from having him take up a spot in the press box all the time. That I just was resigned that he was going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so maybe that's just passive acceptance. But yeah, I, I do wish him well. He's clearly got some uh, some offensive gifts and some finishing talent. And, you know, I won't be surprised if he get has a, a couple of good years in Vancouver, who frankly don't have enough scoring wingers to really push him down. Like, they're not... If you look at um, their lineup... It is actually a little shocking just how thin they are on the wings after Brock Besser. Um, it's more so than maybe I realized. And then you think, well, I should have known they're a bad team. They don't have a lot of good players. Right. But Josh Levo should have an opportunity there for quite some time. So, yeah. Yep, agreed. Um, all right, was there anything else you wanted to add? Uh, no, I think I've run my spiel on this one. So, yeah. All right, sounds good. So, uh, first off, thank you all for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fuleman's stuff at penchpanpuppets.com as well as all the least content you need. Uh, we ramp up stuff as we head into the playoffs, and, you know, it'll be a lot of fun for the rest of the season. You can also follow myself and Fuleman on Twitter at RV and at AT Fuleman. Uh, you're probably already following Fuleman because of his awesome viral, semi-viral tweet. Yeah, our standards uh, are so low for, for, like, being viral. It's like, you get, like, 50 retweets. It's like, oh, shit. We're famous. Like, wow. Get the camera. I'm basically the same. Yeah. Because <laughs> we live in, like, one pocket of one corner of hockey. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next week.